The Eco Right Speaks podcast is your conservative home for weekly climate news, interviews, points of view, climate heroes, jesters, and so much more. We'll share the stories of people leading in their local communities and around the country. Welcome to the Eco Right Speaks podcast. It's brought to you by RepublicEN.org. Hello, and welcome to the Eco Right Speaks your climate-focused podcast produced by the team at republicen.org. I'm your host, Chelsea Henderson, coming at you from the weirdest March weather ever. One day, it's 60 degrees. The next, it's 38. The daffodils are blooming, and pollen counts are high in the mid-Atlantic. If you're wondering why I'm talking about the weather, well, it is very appropriate considering today's guest. Jim Gandy is a retired American television meteorologist, most noted for his time with the CBS affiliate WLTX from 1999 to his retirement in 2019. He was News 19's chief meteorologist with four decades of experience in meteorology, which led him to his moniker as South Carolina's weatherman. As you will hear, he used his position as South Carolina's trusted voice on weather to talk about climate change and impacts his viewers could relate to. After a long and distinguished career, Jim Gandy retired from the industry in 2019. We are honored to have him with us today, where he's going to talk about some impacts we don't often associate with climate change and listeners. They're pretty terrifying. So don't go away. Coming up next, my conversation with Jim Gandy. Listeners, welcome back. I am here in conversation today with Jim Gandy. Jim, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, as the listeners heard in the intro segment, you are a retired meteorologist. And I think that you are one of meteorologists are one of the best voices to have on the show because Obviously, you your career is focused on the weather. Mm-hmm. And as you know, and I know, many people who are skeptical, skeptical about climate change say, well, they can't predict the weather. So how can they predict climate change? And the crazy thing is that you do predict the weather. So I wanted to give you a moment just to respond to that type of criticism. Well, first of all, most people who say that don't know the difference between weather and climate. Absolutely. And weather is looking at the instantaneous state of the atmosphere. Yes. Climate is looking at the long-term average. And as it turns out, we can actually prove, um, we, we can actually forecast the average better than we can the instantaneous. So in the instantaneous weather, we might not be able to project more than maybe about 10 days with any uh, reasonable accuracy, but the average, we can do a pretty good job even out to 10 and a hundred years. The caveat being the trends have to be the same. In other words, whatever the trend is, and we can forecast the trends that's going to impact the climate. And if we know the trends, then we can forecast the climate. The problem is if we change the trends, then obviously we have to change the forecast for the climate. Right. You have a lot more data to work with with the trends. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And and so um, it's not as difficult as someone might seem. I I know that I was highly skeptical way back when I was uh, a 
getting my degree in meteorology at Florida State, um, I got I got wind of people trying to forecast the climate, and I, my my first impression was, wow, that's 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 kind of strange because we can't even forecast three days in advance at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the uh, the forecasting of weather has come a long way. The sure. forecasting of climate has come even farther. Right. I mean, I actually think on the weather front, it's pretty remarkable that I can pick up my phone and I can put in any city in the world yeah. and get a 10 day forecast. Like that, well, the, it's the not technology. Exact. The yeah. technology is so, I mean, I tell people in the course of my career, when I started with my career in television, it was 1975, my weather map had magnetic symbols. Today, I use essentially what were supercomputers back when I was yes. going to school. So the technology is just vastly superior. The computer models are vastly superior and the observational technology is vastly superior to what I had when I started. So at what point did you, did the climate light bulb go off over your head where you thought, okay, this is something? Well, you know, I, being school, schooled in meteorology, I, I knew about climate change. I knew the fundamentals of climate change, mm-hmm. but I was focused on forecasting the weather. So I didn't pay too much attention to it until probably the middle and probably around, it was around the 2000 to 2005 uh, timeframe. What happened was a friend of mine was retiring from the University of South Carolina in geological sciences. And um, at his retirement gathering, some of the geology professors came up to me and here I am. Of course, I was a local celebrity on TV because I was doing the weather. <laughs> right. You were up, South Carolina's weatherman. weatherman. And so they came up to me and they said, well, is climate change real? And it, of course, I said, yes. But I said, no, wait a minute. They're coming to me to ask me if climate change is real. And so I said, OK, I better look at this a little bit closer. So about that time frame, I started um, I actually started. Uh, looking at climate change from the standpoint of the skeptics, uh, people who were dismissive, Mm -hmm. because I said, okay, these people don't believe it. Why? So I started looking at their arguments and it didn't take me any time whatsoever to dismiss their arguments. The science was pretty clear. And I said, wait a minute, these people keep saying this, but but it has long been since dismissed. It's been shown that their argument is bunk. Right. Dr. Marshall Shepard was on our show and he called those zombie theories or zombie excuses. Yeah. Yeah. And so, (laughs) so we, uh, so I started looking at that and I said, okay, you know, one of the, one of the arguments was, well, you can't trust the observational record. And so I started looking at that. And yeah, there were some questions about the observational record, but then I said, okay, so what can I do? What, what, what's out there that could confirm the observational record? And ironically, it came from somebody at the Weather Channel. Uh, Stu Ostro had the bright idea to take the reanalysis data and 
uh, essentially what he did was he subtracted, uh, I, he subtracted, and I can't remember what level. Oh, he, he subtracted the thickness of the atmosphere from uh, the year, I think it was 2005, from 1975, 76. And when he did that, he found that the thickness of the lower atmosphere had increased over that time, almost over the entire Earth. And the moment I saw that, the light bulb went off. I said, oh, my God. Because in meteorology, there's a clear um, relationship. Uh, The thickness of the atmosphere is directly proportional to temperature. If the thickness increases, the temperature has to increase. And it was global. So there was my confirmation. So then did you feel a sense of responsibility in your reporting or when you encountered people to make this case, to use what you knew, your experience to, to, you know, because obviously you're reporting in South Carolina, a state that has its fair share of, of climate skeptics. So, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. But, but, but I had an advantage mm-hmm. and I, I, I knew I had an advantage. Um, so I started doing a few reports on climate change, not many. And Mm -hmm. many of those were on our website at the time. Um, But I wasn't really deep into reporting climate change. But I had an advantage in that I already had a reputation as a weather forecaster. Mm -hmm. And people, I had been here in South Carolina since 1984 and um, with uh, much success. So people... Uh, relied on my weather forecast. So that, that was the first key. Um, and then about, yeah, I would say 2008. Um, was it 2000? Yeah, it was around 2008. I got on the station scientist committee, which is a subcommittee of the AMS board of broadcasting. And uh, in 2009, a meteorologist by the name of Joe Whitty uh, sent out an email to all of the members. Well, he sent it to our, our chairman and he sent it out to all the members about this project at George Mason University about trying to communicate climate change to viewers. And they were looking for an advisor. So I said, hey, that's something I'd like to be a part of. So I quickly sent an email to him, but one of my colleagues got there first. And he got the opportunity to be the advisor. And so I contacted Joe and I said, well, that's, that's fine. Um, But if you need, um, if you need anything, if you need any other help, just let me know. Well, a few days later, he contacted me and said, "Um, actually, we need a test case. Um, And then I made my arguments why I should be the test case. And fortunately, um, my station management backed me up and they wrote a letter of support uh, to get the funding. And we got the funding in 2009. We spent the rest of 2009 and the first half of 2010 putting the project together because it was a, it was a research project. And we started in August of 2010 with our first segment. And we had 12 segments that we'd put together that we were going to use over the course of the year. 
and the, it, it um, like any project, no amount of planning is going to, to come off the way it's supposed to. And this one hit roadblocks right off the bat. Uh, because in 2010, we were in the midst of a political campaign. So oftentimes, my time was being cut at the last minute to go on the air. And we were in the process of switching from analog television to digital television. And, and it just <laughs> put a monkey wrench into everything. But we persevered. And we got the project done in a little bit less than a year. And it showed that my segments were having an effect on the viewers. Well, that trusted messenger um, element is so important. And Catherine Hayhoe talks about that a lot in her most recent book that, you know, if, if you want to try to convince somebody um, to see your side on climate change based on their faith, but you yourself are not a person of the same faith, you're not going to be able to have that conversation as well. Yeah, so right. you are a trusted messenger. You're in people's living rooms literally every night, right? Yeah. Delivering new, they trust you. Then when you are saying something about climate change, that resonates. And- it does. And, you know, uh, we were at the time, again, this is 2010, the, 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 the bottom line for a lot of broadcast management was, well, don't talk about climate change because you'll turn the viewers off. Mm-hmm. And we showed, I think, pretty convincingly that that was not the case. Not uh, so we didn't and we were ready for pushback and we got a little bit of pushback. But like my news director at the time said, you know, I get more complaints about what the anchors wear every day than I ever <laughs> got about climate change. <laughs> So uh, the project was a success, but w- there were there were things that surprised me all along the way. The project was successful, but here I am. I'm I'm the one that's delivering the message. Right. I'm the one that's telling the stories about climate change, and the one the one segment that got the most reaction in that year was the segment that I did on poison ivy. Yes, I was waiting for this. So listeners, this is the hook that got me to invite Jen to be on our show. So please do tell. (laughs) Well, and it's an interesting story. Um, Because for one thing, the research was done at a university nearby. We're in Columbia, South Carolina. The research was done at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. So it's close by. And everybody here is familiar with Duke University. Of course. And it is a reputable institution. Um, So uh, it was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in 2008. We took that research and we made a whole segment on poison ivy. And the bottom line was this, and we all know this, carbon dioxide allows plants to grow better. That's exactly what the research showed. Absolutely. But weedy plants grew even better and poison ivy grew best of all. That was a surprise. (laughs) But as they say in the commercials, wait, there's more. (laughs) As the carbon dioxide increases, the amount of oil that the plant produces that makes everybody react to poison ivy increases as well. And what we learned was 
that it wasn't just changing at the time. It had been changing all of our lives. The amount of oils that poison ivy uh, produces has doubled since the 1950s. And if we continue on our current trajectory, it will double again by the latter part of this century. Well, so so here was an example of climate change already in action. And it had been in action our entire lives, and we didn't observe it. It wasn't until their study that we observed it, and um, it wasn't tied to the change in temperature it was tied to the change in atmospheric chemistry right and and this was another argument that got blown well yeah but carbon dioxide it's just a very tiny part of the atmospheric composition yeah but it plays a big role role. in in the growth of plants and particularly poison ivy so as i told people i said well if you like poison ivy now you're gonna love it in the future We're energy optimists and climate realists. Stand with us at republicen.org. Now back to this week's episode. I mean, listeners, if you have a cranky uncle or someone who does not buy the science of climate change, I've given you so many reasons why they should, right? You might live in a flood uh, on the the coast where you're um, subject to flooding. You might live out west where wildfires are rampant. Or you might be like me and be so allergic to poison ivy. I swear, Jim, I walk by it and the wind blows and some of that oil gets on me and I get it. (laughs) And not only do I get it where the oil touched me, but Uh my body has like muscle memory or something. And so any place I've ever had a rash also breaks out with like a little sympathy rash. So at one point in my life, I got it on my belly and I don't know how, because I do not garden with a crop top on, (laughs) but if I do get a little on my, and I do garden a lot and I have poison ivy in my yard. And so I'm all, you know, and I double glove and Mm, I, I'm so careful when I pull it, but inevitably I'll get it. And then that rash that I once had on my belly flares up. And I said, I don't know what's going on, but I do not want to live in this future where poison ivy is extra um, potent. Well, well, well the, the interesting thing is that even though we had the research from Duke University, we looked for confirmation. We weren't satisfied with just their results. And we found the confirmation in our own backyard. It happened to be at the Congaree National Park. They have been studying the growth of poison ivy since the 1960s, and their growth records confirmed what Duke had already found. So there we had a confirmation on the growth of poison ivy. And of course, it was Duke University that discovered that the toxicity of the plant was increasing as well. So there we had confirmation. And the funny thing was, you know, some of my friends here uh, are skeptical of, you know, the idea that we're changing climate, but they were blown away by the results. Yeah. So they didn't say that the calamine industry, lotion (laughs) industry was behind this. (laughs) No, no, because they have firsthand experience. And and we also looked at uh, hospital uh, admissions for poison ivy, uh, people coming to the emergency room to get treated. And those, that's an anecdotal, but those increased as well. Yeah. I got it in my eye once. That was maybe the most miserable nah. um, poison yeah. ivy I ever had. So 
lesson learned, we must stop climate change or killer poison ivy is going to be, I mean, I won't be gardening by that point, but other people. It it, it didn't stop there. We, we said, well, wait a minute, if this is happening to poison ivy, what else are we missing? And it came from research from Rutgers university in the form of pollen. Now here in the Carolinas, we are in the midst of our pollen season right now. And I am very fortunate that I am not allergic to the tree pollen, but right now, Everybody is just going through misery because the pollen counts are through the roof. Yeah. And uh, Rutgers University in 2010, I believe it was, found that the, as the temperature increased and as the carbon dioxide increased, plants are producing more pollen. And so over time, it's going to continue. And they found from their research that we could expect um, the pollen to increase by 2030 to be the increase to be, I think of the order of 50%. Wow. So it's, it's, but it, it doesn't operate like the poison ivy did where Mm -hmm. the increase is more linear in the trend and -hmm. every year it's getting worse and worse and worse. Mm -hmm. Pollen tends to go up and down, up and down. So one year it's going to be worse than the next year. Mm-hmm. but the bad years are increasing and right. it's becoming a real problem. Plus with the temperature warming, the growing season is getting longer. Mm-hmm. So the pollen season used to start in mid February now starts at the end of January. You know, like you, I am someone who's never been that impacted by tree pollen. And even I went to an allergist thinking that maybe I was having some allergies and she you know, gave me the tests and said, you are one of the only people I know in the DC metro area who is not allergic to anything. (laughs) Um, So let's figure out what else is going on. And they, we did, but I think she jinxed me because we also are in the midst of our pollen season and it was really bad. And I was outside for, you know, 20 minutes or so the other day, kind of clearing some of the, I don't rake. So clearing Mm -hmm. some of the leaves away from the daffodils and things that are starting to bloom. And just that effort, I probably bagged up one bag of leaves or something. I've been so sneezy, scratchy throat, itchy eyes for days, ever since that little um, bit of gardening that I did, which is not really boding well for the rest of my yard, which needs attention because I don't want to go outside. (laughs) as, As the pollen levels increase, uh, allergies often are a result of dosing and more and more people are becoming allergic to the pollen because the doses are getting larger. So there are more people now coming down with allergies than we've had in the past. It's always been a problem, but it's becoming more of a problem as our climate warms. Well, Jim, you have been the bearer of some bad news, and I like to end things on a positive note. So do you have any good news to share before I let you go? <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, I mean, all of this is is solvable. I mean, we created this problem uh, mm-hmm. by our, our emissions of carbon dioxide. So we, we, we are the solution. Yeah. Um, and so we have to find ways. I know. I'll, I'll give you a good example. Now, in my former business as a broadcast meteorologist, TV stations are power hogs. It takes a lot of energy to 
drive a TV station. And uh, in my last 10 years or eight years, nine years at WLTX, uh, we had a chief engineer who just did some fascinating things. Um, in 2010, because we were already going through a lot of changes with the changes in the TV industry, um, the first thing he did was he went into the studio and he changed the lighting system because before they were big, powerful incandescent lights to light mm -hmm. these sets. Yep. He changed everything to either uh, uh, fluorescent or LED. Mm -hmm. And in the weather center, we used to have lights blowing at least once a month, if not yeah. twice a month. And we had to get up on tall uh, ladders to get up there and change it. He changed everything to just three LED floodlights for the weather center. And I said, well, how long will they last? And he said, probably about 15 years. And oh I said, <laughs> so you're telling me that I'll never have to change a light bulb again because I'll be retired before 15 years. <laughs> and he said, yeah, pretty much. Um, but the thing was, by changing all of the lighting, that's all we did was change yeah. the lighting in the studio. We saved on energy costs about $4,000 a year. Which wow. is really significant. That's not yes. chump change. It is not. No. But he went one step further. He went into the newsroom and he replaced all of the computers with faster computers, but they were energy efficient. Yep. And the savings from that added another $8,000 in energy costs. So in the course of one year, we saved $12,000 in energy costs. And another problem we were having was that the reporters, when they were going out, taking the microwave vans to live shots, oftentimes they'd get there and their batteries were dead. And the only way to charge the battery was to run the engine, which of course was burning fossil fuels. So he came up with a novel idea. He installed solar panels on the top of the microwave trucks so and tied them to the batteries. So the batteries were always charging even when the van was not, the engine was not running. And so now when the photographers went out, their batteries were charged and they didn't have to run um, the engine to keep them charged up. So that was, that was brilliant. Um, <laughs> and and, and I, I think the point of this is we can do things at home. It, it's not just about saving the environment. It's also about economics. Yep. Um, you know, who doesn't like to save money? Right. <laughs> and so as my appliances have, have died, I've always replaced them with energy efficient. I've replaced all of my lights with LED or compact fluorescence. And it's saved me a bundle. Over time, my energy bill today is no higher than it was 18 years ago. And that's pretty remarkable. And, and you know, energy efficiency is kind of the low-hanging fruit, right? The, and it is the thing we can do here at home. It's something that businesses and um, even industrial applications can use to lower their own um, oh, yeah. their own costs. And like you, I've changed all my light bulbs. I try to 
uh, walk the talk, so to speak. And, you know, I was just reading this morning about the unfortunate war in Ukraine and Mm. all of the countries that are now um, trying to wrestle with their addiction to Russian natural gas and oil. Yeah. And, you know, I, I really hope that the response is not, you know, drill, baby, drill, because well, there we will do, probably, you know, and there will be some of that, right? There will be some of that, but I, I'll tell you something. Um, people, you know, they're, they're confused sometimes about climate change. They don't want to mm-hmm. do it. They don't want to change, but I'm telling you right now, I'm looking at some changes that are going to be happening in just the next few years that are just blowing my mind. You know, my dad uh, worked for Ford Motor Company for mm-hmm. decades and retired from Ford Motor Company in 1973. Um, and I am blown away by the new vehicles that they're developing. Uh, one, the F-150 is a very popular pickup truck uh, across the country. And they're coming out with uh, an EV version of the F-150. Amazing. And I've been looking at the specs and I am not a pickup truck person, but I like that truck. (laughs) And I've been looking, I said, you know, I just might have to go go get one. You know, and I, I think you're right. The EV market is really expanding and exploding. And you know, it, it's good for our manufacturers, right? We want Ford Motor Company. We want American manufacturers to exactly. be on the, you know, to have the top of the line production, top of the line vehicles. And yeah. uh, while I know that they're still cost prohibitive for some people, it is where the future is going. My next car will definitely be um, some sort of either plug-in hybrid or pure mm-hmm. EV. And My, Mine will be too. I mean, in fact, I, you mentioned Marshall. He, he's got... Um... I think it is, uh, he's got a Ford, is it a Mustang or Maverick? I yeah. Remember. Oh, I know somebody who just bought one of these cars, like a Mach 3. I don't know. It has yeah, some yes, fancy yes. name, but it, yes. He loves it. And I've been, you know, uh, watching what he's been saying on Twitter about it. And I, that is, that's the future right there. The future. And, um, you know, they say, well, it can only go 240, uh, 230 miles on a charge. How many people drive more than 230 miles in a day? I know. I know. You know? So it, I mean, it's especially coming. in our, on the East coast, right. Where our cities yeah. are closer together, where we're a little bit more densely populated. Maybe if you live in Montana or you live out in one of the big Western States, it, it right. doesn't make sense, but let's get them the market saturated in the places where it does make sense. It, and it, I it's have, a, it's a transformation that's taking place. Yes. Yes. It is not commonplace yet. But it will be, but it does take time. We can't do everything overnight. And so um, we just have to progress. Mm -hmm. I was going, drove up to Maine last summer where I'm from. And it was actually on the way home. My son and I stopped at a rest stop in, it was either Massachusetts or Connecticut. And they had a whole line of EV charging stations and people were plugged up. So they put in their car, they were in the rest station and I know that you can do quick charges. Yeah. So I was sort of thinking of that as like in the future, when I do have an EV, like, how does that work? How does going to Maine work? How do you manage road trips? And I just have faith that the battery technology is going to continue to improve. It will. The mileage will continue to improve. Range anxiety will be less of a thing. As yeah. It there are, there is battery technology in the works today that if they can bring it to scale, will probably double the range that you can go in an EV. 
Um, but the thing that fascinates me about the F-150 is the fact that they're designing it in such a way that if you lose electricity at home, you can plug in your F-150 and you can provide temporary power during a power outage. How cool is that? Think about last winter when Texas had that huge power outage. Exactly. Probably a lot of F-150 owners in the state of Texas. So if they were to trade in their their uh, gas versions of those cars for EVs and they had another power outage like that. There you go. There you can keep the heat on. <laughs> so that's, 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 my, the that's my positive that's take. The good is, news. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, if you look at the economics, you're going to find ways to save money. And again, who doesn't want to save money? I love it. Well, I thank you for all your insight and your humor and your knowledge and time. This has really been a fascinating conversation and would love to have you back at some point once you've moved and you're settled and relaxed and uh, we'll have you back on the show. I feel I'd like love we could to. keep talking. Sure. Uh, in fact, I'll tell you what, because um, later in my career, I started Gandhi's Garden. <gasps> yes. We're going to have and, a conversation about gardening then. And, and the fascinating thing about that is I, I saw the subtle changes of climate change up close. And it blew me away. And when I went to conferences and people were talking about, you know, the temperature change, and I said, yeah, but you know, the thing that's biting you are the subtle changes that you're not even paying attention to. And I found it in the garden. So we'll have to talk about that next Welcome back from vacation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Great interview with Jim Gandy. And I knew it was going to be a good one. And it delivered. You delivered. He delivered. His voice. I mean, obviously a network star, right? Like as he was talking, it was just sort of um, interesting to think about how you know, some people are just born with that voice. And wow, if you can then turn it into a career, fabulous. But he just, I could listen to him read bedtime stories or talk about the weather, whatever it is. He was fantastic. A legend here in South Carolina out of uh, WLTX, retired meteorologist there in the greater Columbia area. I hope he's moving to somewhere that the summers are not as brutal as they are. Forget the pollen (laughs) this time of year. I hope he's going somewhere where July and August are far kinder to him than in Columbia. That is definitely my goal for retirement is to go someplace where the weather is kinder for the summer. And, you know, I just have to say that I had read an article a few few weeks ago about how meteorologists were more and more incorporating climate discussions into their forecasts. And I just think that it is really important, you know, they especially because of the confusion between weather and climate. And so he is somebody that I'm so happy we've gotten to know that I've gotten to know. I think we should have him on again sometime. I think we should. Um, I think we should also get to our winner of our contest last week, the podcast quiz contest, and get to our question for this coming week. Yes. I will, I will let you take that away. Okay. So last week's question was which four was to name the four Republican senators that Senator Lieberman, former Senator Lieberman, had had. Um, ongoing climate collaborations with. 
And the answer, drum roll please, was um, John Chafee, my old boss, uh, late John Chafee from Rhode Island, um, Senator John McCain, um, big climate hero um, and somebody who, you know, I had the pleasure of working with his office quite yep. a bit. Another old boss, Senator John Warner, and then South Carolina's Lindsey Graham. So those four Republican senators frequently pairing with Senator Lieberman on climate action. And the winner, ironically from Connecticut, is Leah M. So, Leah, we will be sending you your $25 Amazon gift card as well as a little fun uh, trinket to share uh, to show our appreciation for you as a listener Price, are you ready for next uh, for the current week's question? I was going to say next week's question. I am not a psychic, so uh-huh. I don't know what I'm going to ask yet next week. But this week's question. Never been more ready. Okay. So in our conversation, Jim Gandy um, was, you know, making a little bit of a joke about um, the popularity of climate change Um from the perspective of, you know, working the news desk in South Carolina. And I'm wondering what other um, complaint was more important, or did they, uh, did the station manager hear more of than Jim's reports on climate change? So what complaint did the station manager get more of than Jim's reporting on climate. So send us your answers to republicen.org forward slash quiz Q-U-I-Z like the kind you take in school, except this is not the bad kind. You cannot get an F. If you get the correct answer, your name will be entered for a drawing and you never know. It could be you. You could be the next winner of, you know, what are you going to do with that? I don't know, a book, a couple books, um, lots of fun things. Obviously, you can get on Amazon. So that is that for our quiz price. This has been a lot of fun for me. It's been fun to come up with the questions and it's really fun to see so many responses coming into my inbox and I wish everyone could win, but it is fun to, you know, get to choose that winner. So republicin.org forward slash quiz. That is where you go to enter for your chance to win. Congratulations to our winners that we've had so far and to the ones that we will have that we have not named yet. You are, we will have winners every single week for a chance to win a grand prize uh, for all our weekly winners at the end of the season. So um, also before we get out of here and you tell everybody who we got coming up next week, a shout out to our new members, Sean B. in Arizona, Carter P., in Georgia, Shirley T. in Louisiana, Jim M. in Colorado, and Deandra T. in Maine. Thank you for standing with us. You can do that at republican.org forward slash join. Chelsea, next week's guest. Next week's guest is a former administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency under the first President Bush, so George Herbert Walker Bush, serving all four years of President Bush's term in office at the helm of the EPA, where he oversaw the passage of the Clean Air Act Amendments of 1990, widely considered one of the more important environmental statutes that was signed by President Bush, um, breaking a very long logjam um, that was not 
partisan back in those days price, but more regional. Mm-hmm. So it was, you know, certain states pitted against certain states um, in the effort to try to um, improve our air quality. So he oversaw that process, was a big, um, you know, important advisor to President Bush on climate change, which was really kind of a burgeoning issue at the time. So really exciting um, conversation with him get in a little bit about bipartisanship, um, but also just to see how that that perspective of how different things were just, I wanted to say 20 years ago, but 1990s or early 90s were 30 years ago. Oh, I feel wow. so old now. <laughs> well, I can't wait for that conversation, Chelsea. And on that note, we will get out of here and thank Jim Gandy. Once again, tell a friend, go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever is your favorite podcast app that you listen to other podcasts every single week. Download, listen, subscribe, hit that subscribe button where the podcast is brought right to your smartphone, tablet, computer, whatever it is you listen to every single week. And we will do that again next week. Chelsea Henderson for the Eco Right Speaks podcast. I can't wait to do it then. See you then, guys. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the Eco Right Speaks podcast, brought to you by the team at RepublicEN.org. Make sure to visit RepublicEN.org to learn more and find out how you can be a local eco-right leader.